Welcome to episode 239 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. With peak electricity demand rising and old coal and gas power plants retiring, the U.S. power grid will need to add 200 gigawatts of new generating capacity to meet peak demand in 2030. For comparison's sake, Canada's entire generating capacity in 2021 was 150 megawatts. Much of that new generation in the U.S. will come from intermittent renewables, such as rooftop and utility-scale solar. Virtual power plants can help integrate renewables into the power grid. Several months ago, the U.S. Department of Energy released a report titled Pathways to Commercial Liftoff for Virtual Power Plants. Report author Jennifer Downing joins us from New Hampshire to explain virtual power plants and why they might be able to play a significant role in the power grid of the future. So welcome to the interview, Jen. Thanks so much, Markham. It's a privilege well, to be with you today. I mean, we all know that coal, coal is, uh, uh, coal-fired plants have declined significantly over the last 15, 20 years. And gas has expanded, but we also know that there's lots of renewables in places like Texas and California and other and some other states. And but when I look at the U.S., I see a power grid that's being almost re-engineered in real time. Tremendous modernization, new technologies, business models changing for utilities. Uh, all I mean, is that an accurate uh, view of the U.S. power grid? I wouldn't say I'm an expert on all of the generation assets, the region by region transmission challenges. Uh, my area of expertise is mostly on the distributed energy resource side um, and, and virtual power plants. But the context in which um, you know we see virtual power plants playing a role is that you know for the first time in decades, peak demand on the grid is growing, which some folks may find. Uh, surprising, um, but the increase in electricity usage has been offset by energy efficiency such that peak demand on the grid, uh, in other words, that kind of point in time maximum that the grid must serve, has largely been flat with some fluctuations over the past two decades or so. Um, and so we're seeing that rise, which means that we we do need to increase the capacity of the grid to serve higher peak demand. And at the same time, we do have a lot of old fossil generation assets coming offline. So, you know, some estimates, depending on the scenario, might be over 100, maybe even over 150 gigawatts of old coal plants and some old gas plants nearing the end of their useful life. And so what that adds up to is um, a lot uh peak demand that needs to be served with new resources. And actually just one thing I wanna um, clarify is you, you started the, the discussion by saying we need to add 200 gigawatts of generation capacity. I'd phrase it a bit differently, which is we have 200 gigawatts of peak demand that need to be served by new resources added to the grid by 2030. But the reason why that's, a little bit different by saying 200 gigawatts of generation capacity is because that peak demand could be served by distributed energy resources that dispatch energy or 
could be shifted outside of peak hours, which typically late afternoon on the grid, um, such that that energy is still used, but it's used at a time when we have slack in the system and we have the generation capacity in place to serve that peak demand, um, yeah. which I'll get into as, as we go deeper on the topic of, uh, of virtual power plants. Sure. And thanks for the clarification on that. Um, so what is a virtual power plant? So uh, at the Department of Energy, we define it uh, broadly, which is that a, a virtual power plant is a, an aggregation of distributed energy resources. Now that means you know rooftop solar with batteries. It could be a smart electric vehicle charger. It could be a water heater, a smart water heater that could be you know rescheduled or flexible demand from commercial and industrial loads that can be that and that aggregation can be orchestrated to balance both supply and demand and provide other grid services uh, just like a traditional power plant would and you know the, i like to compare the term virtual power plant or vpp to the term sandwich there's lots of different kinds and they're they can be composed of different ingredients um, and just as a sandwich could be you know served in a wrap or served in a roll a virtual power plant could be operated by a utility or it could be operated by a third party platform that orchestrates the distributed energy resources and then sells those services to a utility. So there are different business models that we observe in the market. Well, uh, let me describe one of those business models. I interviewed a, a business owner in San Diego. And his business was setting up VPPs in business and industrial parks. Because in California, peak costs, and then there are some inc incremental costs as well, depending on when you're, you're using the electricity, are extraordinarily high, you know, 55, 60 cents a kilowatt hour. And so what he would do is he would go into a, a, a business park and he would go around to the business. He'd say, look, I'll put solar on your roof, or maybe there's some, you know, maybe a extra yard or a, you know, a lot we can use. We'll set up solar. We'll have the storage, and then we'll have the power electronics and and all of the the other equipment required. And we will we will serve your your business, and we'll aggregate this uh, the the uh, the power so that uh, it'll be stored, and then we can basically arbitrage it into the system. Uh, when we went and make money at it. And all, all together, it's a significant, maybe up to 50% saving for the businesses. And that is, that would be what, just, that's just one example of what that wrap might look like, what that sandwich. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And just to, you know, for, for folks who aren't familiar with this kind of approach to managing the grid, I just want to kind of clarify how that value is created, right? When we have peak demand on the grid, let's say it's, you know, a hot summer day and everyone comes home and cranks up their air conditioning. And if you have an electric vehicle, you plug it in and um, that creates a big spike in demand. And we have to build up our grid to meet that peak demand, right? That's why we have peaker plants that are, you know, dispatchable gas powered peaker plants that turn on for maybe five or 10% of hours of the year and then otherwise are turned off because you know we don't need as much energy in the fall in the fall and spring for example um and 
all of our transmission and distribution systems also have to handle that peak demand, right? They have to be ready for that high spike, but then on average, they will be running at maybe 20, 25% of capacity. That's an extremely low utilization rate overall for a grid that has cost trillions of dollars to build and maintain. And so the value created by virtual power plants is let's smooth out that 24 hour load curve. Let's defer those uh, you know, investments on upgrading the capacity of transmission and distribution lines. Let's reduce our reliance on peaker plants that are costly to operate. We don't let's let's forget about spending that fuel and burning uh, that fossil fuel and and experiencing those emissions and air pollution. And let's use the distributed energy resources that are already on the grid or increasingly on the grid um, to get more more bang for our buck that on the infrastructure that we've already paid for. And I would imagine that there are states like California that are leading this uh, because there's so much rooftop solar in California that uh, the regulator uh, recently moved to reduce the, the prices that were being paid to uh, prosumers, folks who, who both consumed and produced uh, electricity and then sold it back to the grid. Uh, and so we'll see how that all plays out. There, I know it's very controversial in California right now, but a tremendous amount of solar was being curtailed. It was just being wasted. Mm -hmm. Whereas it would seem that if if uh, more virtual power plants were in existence, that that curtailed power, we would make use of it, which is so much more efficient than the way it's done now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'll touch on kind of where we're seeing a lot of virtual power plants, and I'll come back to the topic of um, avoiding curtailment of renewables. So I think across the US, we estimate that, that there's about 30 to 60 gigawatts of virtual power plant capacity, depending on kind of how you define it. But it's really patchwork across the country. And you'll see more virtual power plants procured by utilities where they have the incentive or requirement to do so as mandated by um, state level regulations. So investor owned utilities are regulated by state level public utility commissions or public service commissions. Um, and there are a variety of different regulations which we don't get into unless you'd like to, um, but it really dictates you know, where we see virtual power plants uh, deployed. And the states where we see the most are California, Texas, New York, North Carolina, Hawaii, and a couple others. Um, and honestly, the, that lines up really well with where you're seeing a lot of EV adoption and home electrification, industrial electrification. Uh, so it's really where we see the need for virtual power plants is where kind of the, the regulations have moved in sync. I'm and then curious. In, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to come back to your point on, um, on curtailment with an example. Uh, in Hawaii, I mentioned you'll see uh, virtual power plant activity. They're another state with a lot of um, rooftop solar and utilities solar. They're they're kind of the, on the fastest path to 100% uh, clean energy among among states, or uh, one of the fastest movers. And there's a there's a VPP operating there that's an aggregation of behind the meter batteries that charge from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. almost on a daily basis when utility scale solar is at its peak so that it can make the most of it 
and then di dispatches those batteries between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. where when the sun starts to go down. So you don't even need rooftop solar for a, a virtual power plant made up of batteries to make sense. Um, the it, It's a great complement to utility scale solar as well. Well, that's what I wanted to to ask about is the the role of electric vehicle batteries. We're just now, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the, the EV batteries being able to play a huge role in balancing the grid and 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 absorbing more renewable capacity. Uh, but the vehicle to grid uh, pilots are just starting now. They haven't been going for very long. Uh, what's your take on the role that EV batteries will play in virtual power plants? Yeah, I think anything that can help shift load is high value for the, the reasons I mentioned before. And so as we think about the role of EV batteries, I would actually uh, encourage you to kind of separate out um, vehicle to grid, which implies that energy is being exported from the EV battery back to the grid. Um, separate that out from managed charging where you're just rescheduling the charging of the vehicle battery without exporting back to the grid. And both are really beneficial. So you can imagine that with EV charging, you know, in the example I gave before where it's a hot afternoon and everyone plugs in their vehicle right when they get home, if you can instead stagger that charging to begin at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., midnight, instead of, you know, right at the end of rush hour when everyone arrives back at their home, um, that goes a long way towards smoothing out that curve. Then um, there are lots of different ways to do that. You can do it through the EV charger itself. Um, there's a company called WeaveGrid that's working in California, again, uh, one of the leaders on VPPs. Uh, they're working with California utilities to actually just use the vehicle telematics, right? Kind of um, uh, connecting into the software of the car itself to figure out where it is on the distribution grid, um, and stagger the charging to avoid grid constraints. And what, that's what? Um, that can really help flatten the curve. When you are talking about vehicle to grid technology, you get this added benefit of, oh, I can actually you know, power my neighbor's house with my car. Um, it requires different technology uh, um, in the charger itself. Um, and uh, th th that technology, exists, it's, it's just more costly to have a bi bi-directional charger. And so the kind of use case of where that additional cost will um, uh, will will vary, right? It needs to be very, uh, I'll say valuable electrons to the, to the utility or to the grid um, to overcome that uh, cost hurdle, which by the way is coming down, but you can imagine scenarios where it is really valuable, right? Imagine that part of a grid goes down and you basically have these mobile batteries where you can drive the car to that grid, plug into a bi-directional charger, and boom, you have a mini power plant right there. What role might microgrids play in virtual power plants? And, and I would assume that a microgrid in an urban uh, environment would be play a different role than a microgrid in a, say, a rural uh, environment? Hmm. The way that I think about a microgrid is that the, and it's relation to VPPs, kind of in terms of terminology and definitions, microgrids are made up of distributed energy resources. 
and they themselves can be thought of as virtual power plants with the distinction that a microgrid can island itself off from the centralized or kind of overall connected grid. That's not a condition to, to being a virtual power plant. You can have a virtual power plant made up of DERs that can't island itself. Um, and I guess we, uh, we could even think of a microgrid as itself a distributed energy resource if it is kind of islanded, but then maybe sending or providing grid services back to the rest of the grid. Um, and it, I, I think that, you know, depending on the situation, it could make sense in either rural or urban situations. Um, on the rural side, microgrids can make a lot of sense where it's very costly to run lines long distances for just a few um, nodes or even just a few buildings. And so they, there can be cost benefits there. In urban settings, you know, I've seen some communities that are kind of connected to um, the regional power grid with a single transmission line, which makes them very vulnerable. Uh, and so kind of equipping that community, even if it's dense, you know, urban center with microgrid technology such that if that transmission line goes down, everything keeps running that it's there's a huge resilience benefit there sure and i think that would be one of the selling points from the, the business i talked about in san diego yeah that that that's one of the things i i make the point of and and here the regular listeners on the on the podcast are rolling their eyes because here i go again the clarity of the u.s vision around elect uh clean electricity and its power grid it might not have been the case five, 10 years ago. But I think now based on the the speeches that I'm uh, reading of, you know, uh, Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo and, and other advisors to the Biden administration, Gavin Newsom and in, in the governor of California, people like that. The clarity of vision on where the U.S. going is going uh, in with the energy transitions, it's just, it's impressive. Like, yeah, I get the sense that, that, that the political leaders and the policymakers and so on have, have, have got it. And now they're, everybody's more or less rowing in this, in the same direction. Um, well, maybe I'll pause you there. Cause I think there's a, a, a recognition across um, DOE and more broadly that the energy transition will ultimately be private sector led, but government enabled. So, you know, for better or for worse, we're not charting the course on exactly where we are headed and every investment that will be made, especially the loan programs office, right? We finance the applications that come to us that, you know, check all the boxes um, on, uh, on on eligibility factors. So I, I uh, appreciate that, uh, that it seems that way to you, but I just wanna not overstate the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the power at our fingertips. Ultimately, this is only private sector led. Fair enough. Well, let's uh, let's get off, uh, get away from the the broad the big picture and and talk about some of the issues that uh, are dealt with in your report. And one of them that that I'm very interested in is how VPPs can be integrated into utility planning and into into utility operations. That's a it's a, it's a great question. Um, so the on the planning side. Um, First, I want to recognize when we when I say utilities, oftentimes it's shorthand for a 
collection of different load serving entities or LSEs, right? You have investor owned utilities, you have municipal owned utilities, you have uh, cooperatives and their planning processes will be quite different. Um, one of the hurdles to VPP deployment that we have heard about through the liftoff work is on the planning requirements as mandated for investor-owned utilities who are governed by those state-level regulators who I mentioned before. Um, so one kind of manifestation of this is that in a minority of states, I think it's just above 20 states, utilities are required to do what's called integrated distribution system planning. Now, what that means is they'll plan their distribution system in conjunction with the transmission uh, planning process. And, uh, and you know, for, uh, for, for those who may not be up to speed on that distinction, transmission, bulk power, that's, you know, the tall towers, the uh, power plants, that's, you know, managed differently in uh, most jurisdictions from the distribution system, which is the poles and wires that finally get those electrons to your house. Um, and so in a minority of states, investor-owned utilities are required to do integrated distribution system planning. If they did, that would focus, sorry, if everyone did integrated distribution system planning, as an example, um, that would prompt grid planners to take a look at the resources they have on the bulk power system and the resources that they have on the distribution system i.e. distributed energy resources, which could add up to a virtual power plant. So that's just kind of one example on the, on the, on the planning side, but you could also look at procurement practices, right? When a, let's say that you have a vertically integrated utility who's managing everything up and down the transmission and distribution system. When they are looking to add peaking capacity, are they going out and, they, and putting out an RFP for a natural gas peaker plant? Or are they putting out an RFP for any resource that can provide peaking capacity, whether it's a peaker plant or an aggregation of batteries, for example, right? So those are the kind of like processes that are they're highly regulated um, for uh, for investor-owned utilities who make up uh, somewhere around sixty or seventy percent of um, of load and the regulatory frameworks that govern those processes can really uh, make a difference in whether a utility plans for and integrates virtual power plants. What's the uh, what's the uh, attitude by utilities towards virtual power plants? Great question. So I, it spans the gamut, right? In the United States, we have over 5,000 uh, load serving entities. <laughs> so I'll say they're on a spectrum. Um, there are some who are really leading the way uh, and have, you know, ambitious targets. So some of the leaders we see are, you know, Rocky Mountain Power, Puget Sound Electric, um, Green Mountain Power in Vermont, National Grid and Eversource with their Connected Solutions program, um, Duke Energy with some of their managed EV uh, programs. I, I could go on and on. You're seeing a lot of the uh, retail utilities in Texas. Now, so then there are others uh, who are kind of slower on the uptake and maybe it's not as urgent for them because, you know, their load is not growing as fast or they don't have decarbonization goals 
um, both of which can contribute to, uh, you know, being motivated to pursue this approach to grid management. Um, but I think one thing to, another kind of challenge that we need to, to focus on is for a lot of utilities, their compensation depends on, on spending on capital uh, projects. So putting steel and concrete in the ground the traditional utility compensation model is to earn a return on CapEx somewhere around, you know, 7%. And then your operating expenditures are just a pass through to your ratepayers, So you're earning 0% on that. Um, that gives you an incentive to build, right? To build new stuff instead of harnessing what is already on the grid. And so the compensation scheme of utilities will uh, be another key factor in the rates of adoption. So give me your sense, Jen, of where VPPs are going and what kind of pace we're likely to see them adopted at around the U.S. Oh, man, if I had a crystal ball, uh, I, I would give an answer right away to that. I think we are at an inflection point for a couple of reasons. One is uh, the need for virtual power plants has made this kind of urgent uh, more so than in the past because of peak uh, demand rising. The second is that the adoption of distributed energy resources such as rooftop solar, behind the meter batteries, EVs is a big one. That is creating a lot of latent capacity on the grid for VPPs to harness. So any given implementation is just going to have more capacity to tap into. And then the last factor I'll mention, you know, surely not an exhaustive list, is that we have VPPs deployed across the country. Again, it is a bit of a, of a patchwork, you know, where we see them state by state, but we have models to learn from, right? And there's it, it's a diversity of business models. It's a diversity of, you know, IT systems, hardware, software, managerial approaches that we, you know, the time is now to go out, look to see what has worked and scale it up rapidly. So I think we're, we're truly at an inflection point. We uh, would love to see virtual power plants really accelerating and already have be, begun to see that just since the liftoff report came out. Well, Jen, thank you very much for this. A fascinating insight into uh, an important part of the evolving uh, American Power Grid. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and uh, all the best in 2024. Thank you so much, Markham. To you as well.